Data Skeptic is the official podcast of dataskeptic.com, bringing you stories, interviews, and mini-episodes on topics in data science, machine learning, statistics, and artificial intelligence. I want to introduce our speakers today. Joseph Constance is a distinguished McKnight professor and distinguished university teaching professor of computer science and engineering at the University of Minnesota. He's a pioneer in the field of recommender systems, a field he has worked in for more than two decades. He's a co-founder of Net Perceptions and of the ACM Recommender Systems Conference. His online courses on recommender systems have reached tens of thousands of learners. Today, scholars debate whether Professor Constance is more of a latter-day Aristotle or a latter-day da Vinci, but all agree that he has mastered the art of writing engaging biographical blurbs. <laughs> Kyle Polish is a host of the Data Skeptic podcast, a weekly show about data science, machine learning, AI, educating people about the technologies that are changing our world. Thank you so much for the introductions. And Joseph, thank you for uh, doing this. This is going to be a lot of fun for me. And for me as well. So let's kick right off. People know you best for your work in recommender systems, and you've been a part of that almost revolution. We see recommenders everywhere. I probably get 10 recommendations a day I don't even know I'm getting. How do we, and everyone kind of intuitively knows what that means, but what's the formal definition? What really is a recommender system? So if we go back to the history, the earliest recommender systems, we use the term collaborative filtering for these systems that would take the opinions of other people in a community and customize and aggregate them to form recommendations for you. So if I want to know what movie to go see tonight, I ask all of you what are the good movies out there. But I don't really do that because, well, frankly, some of you have lousy taste in movies. <laughs> and so I, instead, I, I ask you all to, what movies you like and dislike, and I match them up against the ones I've liked in the past. Pick some of you that I like and that we have similar tastes. Sometimes we call these my neighbors in, in some taste space. And then find out what you think. That was the start of the field. A couple of years later, as the term recommender systems emerged, it started broadening. And so you will hear people talk about recommender systems that are entirely content-based, that just learn keywords. You will hear people talk about recommender systems that mix other people's opinions and content. Honestly, you'll hear some people just say that the 10 top box office hits, if I give them to you in order as a recommender. But what they all have in common is they apply this idea of helping you narrow down the choices by either giving you a little score for each one, what we would call a prediction, or giving you a list, a set of recommendations for the ones you should consider. So there's a lot of ways we could approach that from the ones you mentioned, you know, content systems, neighboring systems, there's lots of clever ideas we could take. How do we know what's the ultimate recommender system? Is there going to be a best one or is that even a good question? From a technology perspective, there's never a best one. It's the right fit to the right application. In fact, a lot of what I've been spending my time on recently is helping people think more broadly about how do you measure whether it's working. When we started in the field, the researchers and industry were really far apart. You know, the folks in research said, the way I'm going to measure whether it's working is the way people have always done in AI or in machine learning. We're going to hide some data and figure out if our algorithm can go back and recover the data we hid. So I would say, oh, I have 20 movies I loved. I'll pretend I don't know about two of them, and I'll see if the system recommends those two back to me. Folks in industry looked at us like we were nuts. They said, we don't need that. Why don't we recommend stuff and see if people buy it? 
If they bought it, it was a good recommendation. And there's been some convergence, I, I can't say it's perfect, of realizing that recommending the things you actually already knew about isn't always good, that it's a, a bad metric because it didn't add any value, and that, in fact, the best recommender doesn't recommend what I've already seen because it found something better than I would have found on my own. And what I saw was what I found without the recommender. And so we're trying. And I think uh, that's a large part of the challenge we have in the field today is how do we define the right measures? Do we want people to click? What if they click and then click away? That's not so good. But not everything leads to a purchase right away. What if they read the thing? Do we want to test whether they forward it to someone, whether they share it, whether they like it? And every business does that differently depending on the nature of its business. One of the notions I learned from your course is the idea of serendipity, that in some situations we'd like to have this surprising discovery. And I have to confess, one of the, my favorite books, uh, Scott Aronson's Quantum Computing Since Democritus, I had no idea about it and Amazon suggested it to me. But I also don't know, was that a fluke or were they really brilliant in their uh, recommendations? How do we measure these responses that are not always so easy to track with just clicks? So the responses aren't so bad because we can go and look at the question, did you buy it? Did you say you liked it? Did you return it? Which is usually a pretty good sign it was a bad idea. Mm -hmm. well, unless it's a wedding dress, maybe that was a different problem <laughs> is why you returned it. But um, serendipity has been something people have been struggling with for a long time. And our best ways of measuring it all start with the assumption that you need another measure first. That other measure you need is expectedness. How are you going to determine whether something is what you would have expected? And most people, when they define serendipity, they define it as the combination of two things. You liked it and you didn't expect it. I've seen it done a number of different ways. I've actually hosted a student from Europe who came over to compare a bunch of the different ways. But they all come down to what are the chances you knew about this? Was it popular? Was it current? Was it well advertised? How similar is it to what you've already seen before? And the more it seems unlikely that you would know it, the more it's likely to be serendipitous if it turns out you like it. And then everything falls apart if we recommend something that's unexpected, unknown, and bad. Mm -hmm. Because that's not serendipity, that's just bad. Right, yeah. <laughs> can feel a bit random even at times, but yeah. maybe some randomness has an advantage as well. I read one of your recent papers that really stuck with me, the one on cycling and serpenting. I was wondering if you could define what those are in the context of how a user experiences them. Absolutely. Let me give you just a, a quick bit of background. This is a paper I did with a, a PhD student here by the name of Tian Zhao. And we'd been sitting down. I had been complaining for a couple of years that we were using these top end lists where we just go from the first thing, to the best thing to the worst thing. And he was complaining about it, but we had different ideas about what to do. His idea was what he then termed cycling, said, why don't we just say, if you've seen the thing recommended to you on the list a bunch, demote it. So you come to the site, you see a bunch of things at the top of the list, you come back right now, if you didn't buy them, if you didn't change your opinions, they're still there. And his idea, the way we operationalized it was, once you've seen it three times, let's assume that means you're not that excited about it, at least for now and demote it below the things you haven't seen at least three times. He called that cycling because it cycles down, but it will eventually cycle back up as you've seen everything else there is to recommend. 
Uh, we didn't do this over you know, tens of thousands of items. We did this over, I think it was the top either 280 or some number like that, so that it was all good stuff. Mm -hmm. My idea was it's probably a bad idea to put all of your best stuff on the first screen. When I get a screen filled with a dozen recommendations, I can't look at them all seriously. I, a couple catch my eye and eventually I get bored and I move on. Maybe that's just me, but I see people nodding in our audience here. So I'm guessing other people are impatient and can't really absorb that much stuff either. And so what I called serpentining for sort of going back and forth, any of you who saw you know, the old original, the producer's movie will remember the serpentine going back and forth, but um, is the idea that we'll just weave those in over the course of several pages. Mm -hmm. So that instead of the first, second, third, fourth, through twelfth item on our first page, it might be the first, eleventh, twenty-first, and so forth. And that means that all of our top ten pages have really good items on them. And the hope is you don't get the depressing notion that things keep getting worse as you keep exploring, which is probably a good thing if you're at a search engine. You know, if you're looking right. at Google, you don't want to hear that the number four item is on page 17 because you have to search a whole lot more. When you run out of things that look good, you know you're done. But when you're exploring products, it might actually be more fun to have some you know, delightful experiences a couple of pages into your product list. So that's what we actually went out and tested. And there's definitely a notion of, uh, well, in brick and mortar, we use the term window shopping. Certainly works online. It seems that serpenting would help that. It would mean that I'm not progressively finding worse recommendations. I'm prolonging my shopping experience. I imagine retailers would like that. Is that sort of the core objective or is that a nice side effect? I'm not sure we knew at the time, but it might be the core benefit now that we've run the study. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely some motivation. You go to the few remaining bookstores or you go to any local uh, store and there's end caps on every aisle. You don't put all the end caps at the front of the store and then say the rest of the stuff you can just go mm -hmm. through. You, you highlight things all over. And that was certainly part of the motivation. We weren't really sure what would happen, but what we found was very much that people recognized that as we moved the best items off, the average quality of that first page of stuff went down. But they also engaged more with the content. They hmm. spent more time, they clicked on more things, they explored more items. I wouldn't call that an absolute win. There were some negative side effects that came out of it. There were certainly some people who just quit the experiment and said they didn't like it that way. Mm -hmm. But I think what it says is if your goal is more engagement, it's not always your goal. Sometimes your goal right. is just get to the thing you want and be done. This isn't a search interface. But if your goal is more engagement, then spreading things out might be the right thing to do. Absolutely. So one of the things I appreciate, well, first that you said, hey, we didn't know how it would work. I think that's the right way to approach any test you want to do, any experiment. You have to have empirical results to prove it out. And there's a great deal of experimental design in the paper that I don't know if everyone gets to appreciate if you don't read a lot of academic papers, but something like the novelty effect, the fact that you change something can perhaps get people to engage with it more. There's so many things you have to account for that could skew your results. And in my read, it seems like you guys went to great extents to conduct an actual legitimate experiment. Can you talk about some of the steps to arrive at the eventual design you created? Yeah, and I think part of this is we're really fortunate. 
we've been running the same online recommender site for movies for what next month will be 20 years. Huh? It's a site called Movie Lens. We have thousands of users come in every month, a couple thousand a week. They know from the time they sign up that we run experiments all the time. Some of them we tell them, some of them we get permission to run without telling them beforehand. But they're all experiments where we change something about the interface, the recommender. All of them are targeted with a few rare exceptions where we warn people, but they're all targeted at making the experience better. Mm -hmm. We don't always know we will, we don't always succeed, but we try. Because we do this, almost all of our big experiments are more field experiments than the little lab experiment you may be used to from an academic setting. So we get people in, we randomize them into a different condition. So somebody's getting, you know, just serpentining and somebody else is getting serpentining plus they're getting cycling. And do they get the cycles to change within a session or only between sessions? Mm -hmm. And all those different design factors. That's the first thing I'll sit down with a student and do is say, what are the factors we actually want to vary? And then immediately we start saying, and which of these can we get rid of? Because anytime you sit down with somebody, there's 10 factors. Okay, well, if each one has two conditions, and that's two to the 10th, uh, that's a thousand different experiments. We don't, <laughs> we don't want to do that. But we'll typically find three factors that are worth varying. We'll assign people into groups. We'll give them this thing, and for a while, typically, just log what they do. Do they click more? How often do they wish list something? How often do they come back later and rate the movies that we recommended to them? Ah. That's an important thing. When I talked this afternoon, one of the studies that I'll talk about a bit is one where almost everything we did was retrospectively looking at whether our recommendations had an effect on what people saw later, mm -hmm. which is really a cool thing to be able to do. Then we layer on top of that whatever surveying we're doing. In this case, it was somewhat heavy. We had a lot of questions asking people, they knew they were in an experiment. We asked them to compare their recent experience with what it had been like outside the experiment on things like novelty, serendipity, freshness. Frequently we'll have different, you know, almost synonyms so that we try to capture what's really going on. In the most sophisticated experiments, we'll work with some statisticians or psychologists to disambiguate all the different concepts. This one, we didn't have to go quite that far. But we got a, a lot of useful feedback, some of which was just abject failure. I mean, <laughs> what happens, you know, both, you know, the punchline is both cycling and, and serpentining worked really well for getting people engaged, unless you did them at the same time. Hmm. And then people were just confused and had no idea what was being recommended, why. They just knew it wasn't very good and it wasn't very sensible. That had no positive effects whatsoever. And so sometimes you find building blocks, they don't always fit together. That's interesting. So based on the results you guys had, what, what do they do for me? If I had uh, an e-commerce platform and I wanted to introduce those strategies, I guess I wouldn't do them together. What advantages do I get out of picking one or the other? So I think the, the key thing that you're going to try to do if you use these techniques to say, where is it that I'm trying to get people to explore? So I'm going to use Amazon because I'm sure at least a couple people here have seen their site one or two. Um, I see the messages daily that says someone in my home has bought something there. Um, and think about the different recommenders that are there. When you show up on the first page, I'll be honest, I hate Amazon's first page because it doesn't do a lot to give me 
change and breadth. It seems yeah. like it's just, well, here's what you clicked on recently and haven't bought, and here are a few things you bought a while ago and haven't bought again recently. And that would be a great place to think about how do I incorporate more freshness. Mm -hmm. By contrast, if I go in there and I say, oh, gee, I'm looking for LED light bulbs, and I find an LED light bulb, it's three and a half stars, I'm thinking, and I see that list of what are other products, I probably don't want to use these techniques there. I want the hmm. best choice other products for this, the top six or the top 10. And unless I'm going to that page all the time, I don't want it to change. I want that to help me have a navigation strategy that says, if I want to find the best rated light bulb at a reasonable price, go find any of them, find what people actually bought after they shopped for this and move forward. So I think the, the lesson for any retailer, and honestly, you can use this in a physical environment, not just online, is to break down where are you dealing with repeat visits, mm -hmm. whether that's customers walking in or elsewhere, and how can you create variety? And you know, restaurants do this. They may have a static menu and have a little special sheet. Mm -hmm. You put the special sheet on top when you hand right. it to people because if they come in all the time, this is their way of having something fresh. They already know the thing that's underneath, and they can go to that if they want something comforting. So I saw a talk, speaking of Amazon, from one of their early recommender engineers, and the joke was made. Someone asked, you know, how do you know when your work is complete? Uh, I'm sure you know the punchline already. He says, uh, well, on the day that there's a single product on the Amazon homepage that you immediately purchase, that's when we'll have cracked the code. And it's it sort of, for me highlights the ridiculousness of what does it mean to finish a recommender system. And we can take it in so many directions. How do people make intelligent choices about what to optimize for? Who says people make intelligent choices <laughs> about what to optimize for? Um, I, I think if you're going to try, it starts with understanding your business and understanding your customers. That's very different for every business that you're in. And I mean, we've seen examples of this. Wells Fargo did a great job optimizing for new account openings. Yep. It turned out <laughs> that might not have been the right thing to optimize for, but once you set that as a goal, you can achieve it with the right incentive system. You really do need to understand <laughs> what are you trying to do and in every business, that's very different because every business has a certain amount of repeat. I mean, even when I think about the nonprofit recommenders that are out there in areas like movies or music, those are two ridiculously different businesses. Yeah. You might rewatch a movie once in a rare while. If you had a music system that never played your favorite song again, you'd stop listening to it. And so things like how often do you bring something back require understanding the customer. And I don't actually think there's better ways of doing that than actual interaction with customers and getting people who are experts at dealing with customers. All right, everybody, let's take a break from the show to talk about our sponsor for today, Periscope Data. Periscope has been a longtime sponsor of Data Skeptic, so you've already heard about so many of the great features their product has. Today, I want to talk to you about a specific use case for where I see Periscope fitting into certain companies. Tell me if this sounds like your business or your employer. You guys were a startup. You built a great product, maybe an app, maybe a site, whatever, and it took off. Now you're hiring like crazy, you can't keep up, you're totally focused on scale. But as all the data scientists and engineers get heads down, other units, business, sales, marketing, oftentimes they're left without the resources they need. Sure, you guys are tracking everything, but some of it's in MySQL, some of it's over here in Postgres. Your company needs business intelligence. 
and the first step there is getting all your data into one place, making it easily accessible. Now oftentimes, a lot of debates arise in this area and nothing ends up happening because there's too much conflict about what tool or product do we use. Well, here's the reason you want to check out Periscope data. Before that meeting is over where people are arguing about what tool to use, you could already have Periscope data set up and be building dashboards. It links to all the major data sources you might want to store stuff in. You can centrally access them from one place, build beautiful charts very easily directly from SQL, create all the dashboards the company needs. Be a real hero this week by checking out periscopedata.com slash skeptics and seeing if their solution's right for you. That's periscopedata.com slash skeptics. And so things like how often do you bring something back require understanding the customer. And I don't actually think there's better ways of doing that than actual interaction with customers and getting people who are experts at dealing with customers. The flip side is you also have to know how you make your money. Nobody gets a good recommender system by recommending the products that are on sale as loss leaders and directing people to the fact that, look, we've got ketchup on sale at $1.15, when that was supposed to be the thing that got you to go and buy the hamburgers or whatever it was. You need to understand, and I mean, it would be silly to deploy a recommender system that was ignorant of what are the products, not only that you make money on short term, but that lead to customers coming back and being loyal to you longer term. The places that are really good at this in general in business often are finding ways to steer people towards proprietary brands. Mm -hmm. Amazon started doing a pretty good job with their Amazon choice labels. Trader Joe's gets people into their store because, oh, I, I liked the Spanakopita and well, the only place you can find Trader Joe's stuff is at Trader Joe's. And once I'm there, you know, who doesn't need another pound of brie? And, um, and you get things like that. That happens in the online world. That happens in the financial services yeah. world. You know, there's nothing stickier than a checking account and a credit card, right? And the checking account's stickier than that. I was actually, my first job in the real world was in banking at the time that Citibank was first opening its ATMs. Mm -hmm. The whole industry's jaw dropped when they moved, I think it was like 4% of bank accounts from other banks in the New York area to Citibank in a year because people thought it was worth all the inconvenience of changing their accounts to get to this 24-hour banking. Mm -hmm. Well, if you know that that's the anchor, you build your recommendations around that. How do you enhance that experience, make it more valuable? You know, don't spend your time recommending things that in the end aren't going to build your business. In the context of movie lens, there's some really interesting things to me from a research perspective because you control the whole experience and you have the opportunity to survey people. They know they're participating in a study. So you can measure maybe a little bit more precisely than a retailer could. I'm curious about when you have control groups, People think they're in an experiment, but perhaps they're seeing the results they saw before. I compared a little bit to, you know, we, they conduct the annual Turing test, where I think everyone kind of knows what the Turing test is. But what's not often reported is, even when you're talking to a human, you're asked to rate how human did you find this person to be. And rarely do humans get rated 10 out of 10. People are always about 8 out of 10. Um, so in the same way, just the fact that I'm getting recommendations and my brain is running saying, oh, what are they doing? How did they figure this out? I might not always parse what's luck versus very clever strategies. How do people self-report uh, from a control group? It's a fascinating design problem. And we've run many studies with two controls, the do-nothing control and the do-everything-except-the-active-ingredient control. Ah, interesting. Because they are different. 
And so we did a lot of studies, oh, about a decade ago that involved trying to get people to interact with our site more. You know, we would induce them to rate more. We'd just set a goal for them or put them in a group and say, hey, you're competing against this group. How does it work? And it turns out the biggest effect is if you reach out to somebody and contact them, they do stuff. And so the message was an effect. But if you didn't have two controls and say, how much do people do when we don't talk to them at all? And how much do they do when we put them in the experiment but don't actually use any of the ingredients? What happens? This is very much like what you would learn from the pharmaceutical research that goes on with drug studies, mm -hmm. that sometimes you need to compare both against a placebo, but you also want to know how the placebo does against somebody who's just simply not treated because and they don't do this as often as they probably should. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the drug has an effect compared to a placebo, but that effect is small compared to the effect of just giving people the sugar pill. Is that enough of an effect to warrant whatever the side effects are? Yeah. I think that's part of the design. It's true, recommender systems are intervening with people all the time. Experiments are intervening with people all the time. There isn't a natural status quo. That makes it hard. Occasionally, we've done some really fun studies where we try to let people do whatever they would do naturally in addition, but even those are a little artificial. My favorite was years ago when, I'll tell you how many years ago it is because we had gift certificates to Blockbuster Video. <laughs> I'm sure you all have some of those remaining and they're still not good. Um, but. Um, we would bring people in to try to figure out whether our recommended movies led them to movies they would like. And you know, we would have some people pick their own movie, some people would use our system, we'd send them with a gift certificate to go watch the movie with the caveat that if they returned the movie and told us how they liked it, they could get a second gift certificate to watch a movie they'd really like. You know, that's as close as we could get, but I'm yeah. not under the illusion it was, it was perfect. You know, if you have people watch it in a lab, that's a miserable experience. Mm -hmm. We gave them the certificate to watch it at home. Some of them really did. Um, some of them probably got two minutes into it and despite our instructions, just gave up. You do the best you can. Where is the level of precision then? In different settings, you have different situations. You know, Amazon can always look at, did they actually buy the product? And that sounds right on paper, but also, you know, maybe isn't as long-term. If I buy something because it looks good and it's actually a bad product, maybe the reputation is hurt. So there's these longer-term things to balance. In, you know, the case of Movie Lens, you talked about some of the interesting things. Do they come back later and rate it, which I think is really clever. Even how, you know, favorites or, or saving stuff, but there are users that disappear because that's what users do. You know, it's not the Hubble Space Telescope where we're measuring to, you know, so many decimal places. Is there a limit in just what's measurable that, that kind of oh, inhibits things? Absolutely. There's a few different versions of that limit. The biggest one that hits us is, yeah, most people who come to a site never come back. Plain and simple. Mm -hmm. And that's true with us. That's true with every site that's out there. I guess it's probably not true with Google anymore. But <laughs> it's true with most sites. They come. They look around. We start to gather data on them. And they're gone and we don't know why. Occasionally, we try to follow up with people to find out why. It's not really that informative because people can't really tell you. You can give them things like, I didn't like it. There were just other things I would rather do. But you don't really know what it was. Mm -hmm. Do you not like our background color? What is it? Yeah. You know, we can't tell. So that's one source. People have significant variation in their responses over time. 
So a lot of people have studied, sometimes in the effort to try to estimate what's often called this magic barrier beyond which we will never get more accurate, you can't get more accurate than the underlying people to begin with. Mm -hmm. And so there's actually been a lot of good work on how do you get people to accurately recall how much they liked something and to put a score to it. Different strategies that are out there, some of them are as simple as say ask them multiple times and throw out the extreme values. It's sort of not a pleasant experience, but it's, it's there. There's some people who say, we're going to double check the things that just look wrong. You know, if you came in and said, oh yeah, I loved Star Wars, I loved Return of the Jedi, I hated The Empire Strikes Back, maybe you misclicked. It's not that common that people love those two and don't like the third. By the way, it's different with other movie series. There are people oh, yeah. who hated Star Trek one but loved the other ones. Actually, most people will tell you every other Star Trek was a good movie. Right, right. Then they got lazy again and just said, yeah, people will see it anyway. <laughs> but, but different things like that you can do. The other thing people have done is to try to help people with interfaces that help them anchor. Uh, we did some of these studies. Other people did some of these studies where you say, before you tell us how much you like this, Here's our scale. We're going from a half a star to five stars. Here are some similar things that you gave for three and a half, three, two and a half, so that you can try to compare and anchor your experience. Is this more like this movie or more like that mm -hmm. movie? And that might help. And it, in fact, it does help to some extent in reducing the noise that people give you. So there are a lot of things you can do. Not all of them are worth doing in a commercial setting. Mm -hmm. You know, there are a lot of things we get to do because we don't make any money on this and we don't worry about advertisement and most important, we don't worry about people leaving us if they don't like it mm -hmm. as long as we get enough people to, to keep doing studies. But I'm not sure if I were running a business if I would stop people and say, hey, wait a minute, you told us about a bunch of products but we don't believe that that's what you really think. <laughs> Fill out this form. Um, Filling out forms is not really a, a great thing to do there, but the flip side is in most businesses you do, do deal with repeat interactions. And so you do discover, did somebody buy it again? Is somebody continuing to look at it? Are they continuing to almost buy it? Uh, and you know, frankly, some of the lazy strategies do work pretty well if you don't go overboard. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't blame Amazon for the fact that when I browse for something, and don't buy it, it suddenly follows me all over the internet. <laughs> I blame them for not recognizing that after it's been stalking me for a couple of days, it might be time to stop. And for not giving me a way to say, hey, idiots, um, I had to get my purchasing people to buy that because it wasn't personal, and I'm never going to buy it, but it's on the way, so stop telling me about it. Yeah. And that's, that's a real story. I, mean, I, I, had, I bought a, a, a replacement treadmill for my desk at work, and it was, you know, I can't, well, I could, but it would be a real pain in the neck to buy it and try to get somebody to reimburse it. Thankfully, they were willing to order it for me, and that treadmill followed me for about eight weeks yeah. <laughs> uh, in every place that I went, and I still occasionally see the treadmill pop up. And, and it's sort of... Just give me a little button to say no more, please. Yeah. I think it would be surprising if there was a single person in this room that didn't have a similar experience with flowers or who knows what. 
How did we get to that state? Somebody must be clicking and buying or it wouldn't be profitable to do that. But where's the disconnect? Is it 10% of the people are mindlessly buying and the rest, 90% of the rest of us are, are annoyed by it? Well, let's start with the fact that uh, this gets back to that metric question. Mm -hmm. I'm reasonably sure that they know and are right that compared to some other random product, showing you the thing you didn't buy that you looked at is at least 0.01% more likely to result in a purchase. Must be. And that's all it needs to be to be hundreds of millions of dollars across you know, all of these different things. The question is, how do we measure for these folks the lost opportunity of doing something specific that was different, like exposing somebody to a product that six or seven times into seeing they might be even more likely to buy than the thing they were abandoned? And how do we measure, if there is one, the business cost of creating that frustration that if you're stalking me, I might decide not to go to the site for a little while. Right. When we figure out how to measure it, we can do a good job with it. Mm -hmm. But that's the hard part. And you know, part of my mission these days is to try to figure out how we get people who deal with humans, people in computing, people in psychology, to do studies that don't end with a paper that says, here's what we learned, but end with, here are certain metrics that if you optimize your recommender, your machine learning for, those measures are going to result in particular types of results and behaviors. They're not universal. You still need to know your business and your customers to know, do you want this? Are you trying to delight people? Are you trying to satisfy them? Are you trying yeah. to whatever? But if you could know, oh, this measure, will help me achieve loyalty, wouldn't it be nice to be able to do that? And we're not there yet. Mm -hmm. I really liked your idea that you were mentioning about how, why can't I give feedback and say, I already bought the treadmill. And there are certain places I see stuff mm -hmm. like that going on, but in my opinion, it's not very prominent. Is that, I don't know, the arrogance of the implementers or is user feedback not as useful as I think it should be? Why don't we have more feedback mechanisms? I have a few guesses, but I really don't know. I think one guess is most of the time, most of the people wouldn't take the time. Mm -hmm. We have all sorts of studies that show how well we train our eyes to bounce off ads already. Mm -hmm. So lots of people, given the chance, are going to try their best not to even look at the ad rather than to say, I'd rather have a better ad. We only really focus on ads once a year right, during the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. uh, during the Super Bowl, we focus on ads because the ads are good. They've not been as good as they were in their heyday, but they're still a lot better than the rest of the year's ads. We all know that the future is that ads and content are not going to be separate mm -hmm. because people are skipping ahead, whether it's their TiVo or DVR box or whether it's just looking around or using an ad blocker on their browser. And the solution that all the content people are going to have, because advertisers aren't willing to pay to be ignored, is unfortunately it's not going to be long before it's much, much more common, it's already happening, that you're experiencing your content and the ad is woven right into the content. Yeah, You have the experience that there you are watching Big Bang Theory and it's sort of, 
oh, I'm feeling a little tired. I think I could use a refreshing Coke. And that Coke was paid for. Sure. We have that phenomenon. In some cases, the challenge of displaying the right ad for some of these ad networks is already so hard that adding in how do I deal with customer feedback can be challenging. Mm. And sometimes it's being displayed to you as much to meet a quota as it is to meet uh. you. Because they have these contracts of how many people do I have to display these to combined with, well, what do I have to generate in the way of click-throughs and other things? Well, if those folks will click, but I still need to display it a thousand times, I'm willing to display it to you if I don't have some better use for you, even if yeah. I know you're not going to click because I have to display it a certain number of times to meet my audit requirements. And so I think that's complicated, although it's the ad networks that have probably pioneered letting you say, I really never want this ad again, and they'll give you something else, mm -hmm. because they do want you to click occasionally. Right. I don't think that's the worst problem right now with internet advertising. The worst problem are the pages that exist for no purpose other than getting you to click on ads. Yeah. I mean, you've all fallen for this at least once where it looked like it was an attractive news article and the main feature of the article was that the content jumped around so that as you tried to click next you hit an ad by mistake and then they got to count hey look this mm -hmm. person clicked on your ad really there's a lot of problems that this field's going to change in yeah we've covered some of the big use cases movies music products are there opportunities you see that you're excited about where recommendation systems haven't really had an impact yet there are definitely some applications where I think there are going to be some huge benefits. And there's some where I think things are really challenging. The huge benefit that I'm really looking forward to, and we're, we're right on the cusp of this, uh, is in education. Oh, yeah? Because there have been people working in computer-assisted tools to support education for decades. We're just getting to the stage where there are enough choices in educational materials and you're seeing some of these new high-tech schools that are built around this idea that here you are struggling to learn basic algebra or division. And there really are different ways to teach it and different types of, of exercises. And if I can learn from what you've struggled with before and the experiences of maybe a few million other school kids, what might be the best chance for you to master this and watch it? And if it doesn't work, change we may do a much better job educating. Yeah, That never happened in the past because not enough of it was digital and there were no choices. I mean, we had educational modules when I was growing up. You went to the card box and took out the next lesson, but they were all sequential. There was no notion of pick one of these five depending on your learning style, mm -hmm. but things have changed. And I think that's going to be a really compelling space. I, I mean, from... 20 years ago, we had this vision that recommender systems to help evolve preferences and learning would be really cool. I, mean, I talked about it more than a decade ago in France, and I used the example of wine and said, you know, think about this. The goal in recommending wine might not be to get you the wine you like. The goal in recommending wine might be to help stretch you just a little bit towards appreciating better and better wines. I say this as somebody who's, who's you know, relentlessly committed to wines that are mostly residual sugar because they're sweet and tasty. Don't go by my tastes. But, you know, with the right system, it might say, well, you know, here's a wine that's still sort of sweet, 
but it actually has some body and you might enjoy that. And 12 or 15 recommendations down the road, you might have me at Bordeaux. There's a lot to think about how do we develop people and their sophistication. Those challenges exist, and I'm going to mention this because it's particularly in the financial industry where this is a huge challenge. It's not necessarily a collective direction game when there's some zero-sum elements. Everyone talks about, why don't you have recommendations for stocks? And you know we've run from that as quickly as we can because as soon as your recommender picks a stock, if people buy it, it was a bad choice unless you were the first. I mean, I, I will say I don't understand most advice in the industry because there's people who say, well, we're recommending this, and they never come with at a price below that. Because if you can't yeah. tell me at what price you're recommending it, I don't know what that means. So I just sort of punt too much. But I think that there are some spaces where is it theoretically possible to imagine saying, no, I have a whole portfolio of customers, and it's really true that some of you are more tolerant of risk and some of you are more tolerant of low returns in exchange for low risk and we could allocate a basket of opportunities to a basket of people yeah i think that's possible but i think you also have to be really careful that you don't get in a competitive space where a recommender is favoring certain people over others that you have an equal responsibility to mm -hmm. and so i think there's some really fun challenges ahead absolutely you said something particularly novel that blew my mind. I'd never even thought of this. To me, recommender systems have always been sort of a passive thing. Look at my history, figure out what I might like. But if it's going to lead me to the Bordeaux wine, take me on a journey, how do you begin to construct something like that? I'll answer that three ways. Mm -hmm. One, the answer to any of that is temporal. It involves time sequencing and the idea that what you want is not what you want always, it's what you want at a particular time. Uh, yeah. That's part of a trend in recommender systems towards incorporating context, because it's not only time. It's time, it's, it can be weather, looking for a tourist opportunity. Well, if it's snowing, it's a different opportunity. Mm -hmm. It can be who I'm with. Am I here with family? Am I here with friends? Am I here alone? As you include context, you have the opportunity to come in here and say, well, we can constrain our recommendations and shape them around those different times and contexts. So the last point on that is it's really, really hard. Mm -hmm. At the base, if you think of the recommender systems at its mathematical core, most of them today are a sparse matrix of people and products, and you're missing a bunch of cells, like 99% of them, and you're trying to estimate the values that are in them. You don't make that problem better by making it people, products, and time, and missing 99.999% of them. And so people have to be really clever and take shortcuts to incorporate time. So one thing that I find exciting about recommenders is it seems to me that there's so much work to be done yet. It hasn't been a solved problem, and every domain requires something a little bit unique. And even perhaps an outsider could come in with a new crazy idea that we can experiment on and with the right metrics know if it's good. How can people get started in this space? A couple quick answers. One, you know, there is a lot of online resource 
out there, mm-hmm. our courses, but others as well, and and books for learning and mm-hmm. offline too, if you like paper. Well, plug uh, the course, but also any uh, books yeah, no, we have we have a whole uh, series on Coursera, which you can decide whether to take for free or pay and get graded and all that lovely stuff. And if you want to find it, I know you can, so I'm not going to plug it more. But number two, there's wonderful tools out there. Mm-hmm. You know, we've put our recommender systems toolkit out there for public use. It's called LensKit. There are other toolkits that are out there that have a whole bunch of the algorithms pre-programmed, the metrics pre-programmed, so you can just experiment. And three, there's a whole bunch of data sets out there with all sorts of data to get going. Mm -hmm. Uh, That won't get you to run live experiments yet. You've got to actually recruit people unless you have a a business and a really friendly manager who's willing to let you play with your customers. Yeah, some of you do. But it can get you going to a reasonable state. And you're absolutely right. People who join the field from some other perspective have been making meaningful contributions for years. Well, Joseph, to wind up, tell me a little bit about what you're excited about. Maybe any new experiments you're involved in right now with Movie Lens? Uh, what's kind of on your top of mind? So we've been doing some interesting work with Movie Lens lately, uh, trying to think about how people interact differently with voice than oh, they do with, with other kinds of interfaces. That's been a lot of fun. I'm really excited about this whole issue of trying to figure out what the right measures are. And if I were going to pick one last thing, I I actually spent some time this summer out at an international telecommunications union, one of these UN-connected agencies, at a a forum on AI and social good, Mm -hmm. looking at this broader question of how do we take these algorithms that people don't understand what they're doing and make sure that somehow what they're doing is benefiting society and people broadly, whatever that means. And for some people that means don't let the robots kill people. And for (laughs) others it means how do I make sure that that algorithm isn't taking advantage of me and raising prices and recommending the thing that you know I, I really shouldn't have, but it's my weakness and whatever else it is. And I think there's some really fascinating questions as we start getting into the ethics of these smart algorithms. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to seeing how that goes. Well, thanks again so much for uh, being part of the interview today. And thanks to the audience for coming. This is the first time I did a live one. Thanks, everybody, for coming out. Data Skeptic is a listener-supported program. To support the show, visit dataskeptic.com and click on the membership tab.